Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so nice to have you here in the Zendo. And lovely to have you all online. I can't see all of you at the moment, but um, I'm sure I will in a little bit. So it's wonderful to have you. And for anyone who might be tuning in later on, especially those from our songs in uh, Madison, Minnesota, Chicago, <clears throat> England, Switzerland, and Hawaii, welcome. And thank you for joining for this special occasion. This being the Buddha's Day of Enlightenment. So <clears throat> I'm really excited uh, about this celebration and gathering here together on this joyous occasion to celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, and at the same time, I think part of this is gathering together and expressing our immense gratitude for the teachings that we received from Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha, who offered these teachings to the world so that all sentient beings may be free of suffering and uh, eliminate suffering in their own lives and in the lives of others. What greater gift can a teacher give? <clears throat> so I want to start out by um, talking a little bit about the history of Buddha, the man, his life story. And then um, we'll talk a little bit about what that means to us now. Uh, the fact that we have these teachings and that we have these teachings in our life. And then lastly, we'll do a little ceremony at the end. So, um, <clears throat> to start off, uh, Siddhartha Gautama was born in Saka. This is in, we're talking about areas in, in Nepal, what is now Nepal today. And this is the northernmost republic of what is now Nepal. And uh, he was born during the sixth century before Common Era, so a long time ago. At the time of his birth, a Brahmin seer foretold the coming enlightenment of this child, of this prince. So it was, it was in the stars, shall we say, that he was to become a teacher, a spiritual teacher. So he was the son of a king, the king uh, Sanjadana, who was a member of the Sangha, and Sangha in this context means something different. It was, uh, it means the regular assembly of aristocrats that were in charge of governing this area and the actual Sakyan, which is a family name, Sakyan clansmen and their families. So he was the king of that and then of this very uh, large territory. So uh, Prince Siddhartha lived within the uh, walls of the compound of, of this castle. And there supposedly there were three other castles that he could 
play in and uh, was never allowed to go outside the bounds of this area of the area of the castle itself <clears throat> so he was a very protected young man and yet he was given whatever he desired and was well taken care of and so forth so at some point um, when he became older in his 20s he was curious about what was outside what's in the outside world i can imagine myself doing the same um, and he had an aide assistant to leave and they took him into the surrounds of the castle <clears throat> the area around there and he saw for the first time in his life someone who was aging he'd never seen that before he'd been kept away from that <clears throat> and um somebody said well what is wrong with this person they don't look you know young and healthy like the rest of us and <clears throat> some of his aides say well no he's, he's just aged that's what happens that's what we do <laughs> so he was uh surprised by it somewhat shocked seeing something new and it's curious he thought about it and the way they describe it I, my resource my primary resource was the life of the buddha which is uh, by pq nyan namali i mean there's a set of lines that were very interesting attributed to the Buddha, and that was, and I don't have all of them here, but it's the gist of it, that he's thinking, and it's, it's seeing an aged person, he says, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, or he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I, too, am subject to aging not safe from aging and so it cannot benefit me to be shocked humiliated disgusted on seeing another who is aging when i consider this the vanity of youth entirely left me i just really love that you know not clear thinking <laughs> oh yeah includes me uh, especially for a young young person seeing this for the first time so uh, he goes back to the castle goes on and then then the next time he wants to go out again, more exploring on the outside, and the aide helps him uh, to go, and he finds a, sees a sick person. He's never seen a sick person before. He's been sheltered from that. And so he asks the aide, well, what, so what is, what's, what's going on with this guy? What's wrong with him? And of course, the answer is, well, he's sick. You know, his body is not well it's healthy and that's this is what that looks like um so again he's surprised and shocked by it and then this clear thinking comes in again and he says the same seeing a sick person when an untaught untaught ordinary man who's subject to sickness not safe from sickness is shocked humiliated and disgusted for he forgets himself he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to sickness, not safe from sickness. So it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is sick. When I considered this, the vanity of my health entirely left me. 
And the same thing holds for the next episode he took outside the castle, which was to see someone who had died. Some, someone laid out on the ground with a cloth on it. <clears throat> and again, asking, what's this? And so well, it's someone who's died. And again, he had never experienced this. So it was left in a surprise, but he went through the same, same thinking that, ah, would an untaught ordinary man who is subject to death, not safe from death, he is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to death, not safe from death. And so it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is deceased. When I consider this, the vanity of my, of my living entirely left me. So this was a very uh, important thing in the life of the Buddha, to actually finally be aware of what, this is impermanence, right? And understood it very clearly. This is, this is where we, we all are going to age, get sick and die. So it was an important uh, learning for him. Um, not too long after that, he decided the life in the castle was not for him. That he wanted to, his interest was to become a holy man. So he decided to go forth into homelessness and become an ascetic, ascetic monk. So he renounced all his sensual sense pleasures and wanted to seek sublime peace. That was his objective. So he went out and he found lots of Lots of people there at that time, that age, I guess there were lots of people um, going forth and going into the woods and so forth. And um, so he met some people, met priests and so forth. And he eventually um, heard of the teacher, Alana Kalana, and uh, that was his first teacher. And he met with this man and he said he wanted to live the holy life and the Dharma and the discipline. And that um, he wanted to, this guy to be his teacher. So Kalama said, well, yes, you, if a, a wise person can learn this teaching fairly quickly, you know, come teach with me. And, uh, and so he did. And so he learned the teachings, which were based, based on what they call, he calls nothingness, which I presume is emptiness, but it's not clear, actually. Um, and so he learned that from this teacher. And then he was allowed to teach. And then he got dissatisfied again because it didn't, these teachings did not help him with his quest. His quest being, I'm looking for, to learn um, um, how to have dispassion, how to, uh, how to have this, um, this peace in my life. So he actually um, left that teacher and found another one <clears throat> later, whose name was Udaka Ramaputta. And this teacher um, had other teachings. He also taught what the first Kalama did. And plus he did also a higher attainment of uh, consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, just a teaching in the spiritual life. So again, Siddhartha stays and, and with this man who learns his teaching and the practices, 
And uh, again, the teacher is very impressed with how well he does and how um, he's actually learning the teachers and is able to teach them so well. So he says, okay, you teach, you teach. And so he started teaching uh, with this group. And after a length of time, he realized that he still hasn't had an answered his question about how to find dispassion and also this sense of peace. So once again, he decided to leave. And from there, he started wandering through, um, it's called the Magadan country. It's in another area of Nepal, it's now Nepal. And he eventually arrived at um, Senanagama near Uruvela, and you'd have to see a map for that to be very meaningful for you, but was it another area? Um, so he found a place there where he founded a grove that he thought was ideal. And, and there was a clear river running there with a nice smooth banks. And then there was a village nearby where he could make her alms, basically, make his bowl and beg for food. So at this time, uh, he didn't have a teacher, um, but he was still you know, doing his practices. And one thing that came up, he, he, this area, there was a grove, but there was also the forest. And so he was sitting in the forest. And he was talking, he talks about how, um, a lot of other unpurified, the unpurified, in bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, or in livelihood, or people who have uncalm minds, or people who um, talk bad, or people with you know bad habits like that, that they would have a hard time sitting in the forest, because um, they would just be upset all the time. It's, it's this wild place. There's animals there, and all sorts of things. And say, but no, I am, I am steady. I can. You know, I can tolerate this. This stuff isn't going to come up for me. I've gotten over all of that. <clears throat> but in fact, when the bushes started moving, <laughs> when the bushes started moving and the sounds of the animals approached, he realized he did have this um, anticipation of, of dread and fear in the woods. And so I had never heard this story before. This is new to me. Anyway, so he um, said, well, how can I subdue these feelings of fear and dread? And so he said, I can sit down. I can sit down and I will subdue these, these feelings. These feelings. And so um, he said, I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to lie down. Um, I'm not going to lay down. I'm just going to sit here. And so he did. <clears throat> and he maintained his sitting posture without walking, standing, or lying down till he had subdued his dread and fear. However, he, he, although he had tireless energy, it was aroused, and it was aroused at him during this, and um, he had unremitting mindfulness established while he was sitting there, was so concentrated his sitting, but he was exhausted by the painful effort. And so these painful feelings arose but he says that no, these painful feelings arose in me that gained no power over my mind. 
So that was a very interesting thing. So he could have this stuff that he was able to hold. It. That's basically the idea behind that. So um, after this, he dealt, he dealt with this fear and dread. Um, and he was still practicing these very severe uh, ascetic practices. Um, he didn't eat much at all. And then he, um, he was basically, he had vowed to completely fast. And Mara came and said, oh, well, why are you doing this? You need to eat, blah, blah, blah. I see you, Mara, I have to not eat. So he, so he was, he just stopped eating entirely. And he was talking, he talks about feeling his back. When he felt his back, he felt the front of his stomach. He was so badly, vice versa. <laughs> feeling his stomach, he felt his back up. Anyway, so he was really near to death. And at that time, he thought, you know, I, I have this grueling, by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher in the human state, worthy of the noble's one, the noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to enlightenment rather than just grueling not eating anything and sitting all the time, frankly, somebody was so in such bad health by that time. Did it make sense to continue? And then he had a, a memory, a memory of his childhood when he was about six years old, and it was at a celebration of the sewing. It was a celebration of plowing for the sewing, the beginning of the sewing, not of sewing, but sewing the ground. Um, in the little town of Pinkham. His father was out doing the ceremonial plowing. And he had gone with his father and was left with nurses under a rose apple tree. And, um, and the nurses, of course, all ran down to watch the, the events. So he was left alone there. And as he sat there, this is what he's remembering. As he sat there, he was watching how he saw these green shoots in the fields and they were being plowed and then he saw these insects and the eggs that the insects had laid on those green shoots and for a moment he had this incredible sense of compassion like these little creatures were relatives that had just died it was just for a moment it was this very strong sorrow and then, and then he snapped back and he was thinking, oh, isn't it a beautiful day? And then he kind of went on. So this is a very interesting that he felt this, this, and then where he felt this extreme sorrow and then, and then went back to the beautiful day and the joy that came up in his heart, which revealed to him how experiences change change things and we become the moment we become self-conscious that is aware of ourself we come out of that compassion you know we can have this open-heartedness but the minute we start thinking about something about us then that changes you know? so it's this whole idea of becoming which we talk about in a dependent origination of becoming is so central that's when the self starts to form anyway so he experienced that 
So he has this moment of ecstasy when rapture takes him outside the body and beyond the prism of egoism or the ego. And so he has this spontaneous moment of compassion and allowed the pain of the creatures that had nothing to do with him personally to pierce his heart. And then a surge of selfless empathy brought a moment of spiritual release. <clears throat> so meanwhile, <clears throat> he's back um, starving himself to bed, basically. And then this recognition that, ah, that there is, there is another way to enlightenment. It doesn't have to be these very grueling practices that he'd been doing for so long. So <clears throat> at that time, this is the story of uh, Su Suhata, who's a farmer's wife, who finds him near death and then offers him some milk rice pudding, which ends his six years of asceticism. So, uh, and once he had eaten and he became strong again, he entered into a series of meditations, meaning with mindfulness and equanimity. And then he turned to the knowledge of recollection of his past lives. And then he entered into the three stages of enlightenment. Um, and I read in one source, it was 49 days actually that he was sitting under that tree. But anyway, um, this is a summation of all of that. So, anyway, through the three stages of enlightenment. So, during the first watch of the night, first stage, the Buddha discovered uh, all of his past lives in the cycle of rebirth, realizing that he had been born and reborn countless times before. And ignorance, at this time, ignorance was banished, a light arose, but with no gain over his mind. In the second watch, the Buddha discovered the law of karma. Human beings pass according to their actions in body, speech, and mind. Then we have the dependent origination arose and the importance of living by the Eightfold Path. During the third watch, the Buddha discovered the Four Noble Truths and finally reaching Nirvana. So all traditions agree that in the third watch of the night, Siddhartha finally found the answers that he was seeking all along and became enlightened and experienced Nirvana. And then having done so, he became a Buddha or the awakened one. Um, after his enlightenment, it, it took him a while. He felt like what he had learned was, would be so difficult to teach. And so he didn't teach at first. He just was convinced of that. And it took a while before um, he was convinced by someone else to, to actually go and teach and how important it was to teach. So he did begin teaching. And then and he thought, well, who am I going to teach? And then he thought, oh, I'll teach my two teachers, Kalama and Udaka. Um, but it turned out that um, Kalama had died a month earlier. So that was impossible. And Udaka had died the night before. Well, that wasn't possible. Well, who am I going to teach? So then he considered the five months with whom he had been practicing these ascetic practices for quite a long time. And because they had spurned him. When they saw him eating food, they spurned him. 
giving up, going to the other side. Um, and so he approached them uh, twice, and they would have nothing to do with it. He didn't think their teachings would be valid. And finally, the third time, they were more open. They realized, oh yeah, this is this is this guy we know, and we can trust him. And so he began to teach them, and then from there on, the teaching spread all over the place, even to Austin, Texas. So, so here we have the day that that is celebrated in many many parts of the world, the eighth of. December, but here in Okinawa we usually celebrate it on the weekends, whatever day that is closest. Um, there's uh, some other other people that have there's another date that's used in um, in other traditions, but this is the one that we celebrate. So before we um, uh, what I what I wanted to get to beyond just the telling of the story. The story, I think, is important to recount and connect with that story of the Buddha. And it's not so much that we have, we are, we don't worship Buddha, right? And his personality is, we don't focus on that. That's not our practice. But what our practice is, is to be aware of how the teachings came to be, and then I think, in my mind anyway, um, is we also have an opportunity today, if not every day, to be grateful for having these teachings in our lives. And, and also have a day perhaps where we just take a moment and think about what te teachings are impacting us now. What, what are they actually? What is it that we practice or that we, yeah, that we are practicing with that comes from the teachings? Just to pay attention to that or ones that we have used where that have been really helpful to us. I think it's important to really reflect on that so we'll really fully appreciate these teachings and make it besides just, oh, we just do this. Well, yeah, we do it and, and this is the impact. Notice the impact of those thoughts and say, yeah, you know, this is this is important. This is important in my life. It's important that we come together and recognize that, I think, together. So what I would like to do is kind of open this up to um, to the group to kind of talk about, uh, you know, just choose one thing is whatever it might be um, that you feel like a teaching like the Four Noble Truths or just um, learning to be with, what, what part of the teachings are you um, maybe using or have used that have been important to you in your life? <clears throat> and I can start. <laughs> maybe that will help. <laughs> people get shy. Um, so in, in, in my life, I've mentioned this story several times, but sure it is again. But, I mean, I, I notice things on a daily basis. In fact, um, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, yesterday when I was, I was putting some flowers together for the event, and um, I, 
I was looking at the flowers and, and uh, you know, placing them and so forth. And looking at the rose petals, particularly the rose petals, like just taking the rose petals off the little heads so we can scatter them. And I was just thinking, oh, these beautiful roses, you know? Somebody, somebody has been there working on these roses. You know, they've been watching it for months. They've had the right temperature. They've had the right amount of moisture. And oh, the sun, you know, and the heat and so forth. So um, I just, it was just a moment of opening up. It's like this inner being that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about of, you know, something that I was working with that you can see beyond just what's there. And you, you make this uh, connection with, with across time and across space. And to me, that's the, that's the a part of this, the idea of no self is um, realizing all these connections. There's no one person doing anything. It's all a kind of, you know, everything going on at once, connecting with each other and connecting in all different ways. So then a rose appears completely formed and beautiful. So, so it's that kind of stuff that that, that, that happens to me a lot. And then, you know, the Four Noble Truths, when I really take time to work with that, I think the biggest thing is with relation to my, my mother, <laughs> my poor mother, um, the Four Noble Truths and really getting at what was the, uh, what was my suffering? You know, my suffering was, I thought it was her for many, 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 many years. I thought she was the problem. But in actuality, she wasn't the problem. The problem was, I wanted something different. It's my expectations. And that really changed everything for me. Um, yeah. So, um, now I had to work with that. expectations and so at some point I got to the point where I could let that go she doesn't have to be who I want her to be she doesn't do what she does and she's a result of her own upbringing and conditioning and uh, you know it's like the rock out in the front yard it's just sitting there in your way you stub your toe on it every day you can get mad at it but that doesn't change anything especially if it's a big rock you can't ruin it so anyway, so that's my sharing. Maybe you guys feel so inclined. Now that um, I think you're muted. There you go. Sorry. Good morning, everyone. Um. Well, I'll just talk. Um. I don't know that we ever label any of the teachings with the word I'm going to use, but I find that this is my most difficult and most helpful practice, and the word is patience. And I think every element of our practice is contained in, in the word patience, because in patience is contained generosity, um, kindness, equanimity, it, it, it contains every one of those elements. 
And I know that that part of our practice is to lose the self, but I find that the focus on my level of patience that I have or fail to have with myself is a direct reflection of my patience with others or lack thereof. So in some sense, I walk both sides of the road, constantly going back and forth and viewing the level of patience I have with myself and my humanity and my um, shortcomings or um, falls and getting up again, because it mirrors the level of patience and therefore compassion, equanimity, um, kindness I have toward others. So that is my main focus in my practice. It's not really any one of the precepts, it's all of the precepts. Um, and uh, it, I'm actually mirroring everything you said, Lori, because patience also includes this or lack thereof, this failure, the lack of patience is this frustration with not having what you think things should be, um, or wanting more of what things are when they, when they go away. And so, yeah, that's my practice right now. That is, um, I think that's contained in all the teachings. I think that's a, the fundamental, one of the fundamental principles of our practice that, um, that challenges me and with which I'm working. Thank you, Nelda. Somebody here. Oh, yeah. Okay, Jess. <clears throat> what did I, what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, uh, the story, um, I was thinking like the king, how much energy it takes to kind of make sure that my son doesn't get out, you know, and put everything in place. And, um, and the anxiety that can build, you know, over time. And um, I think that's like, a probably like an everyday practice or something for me, like, there's a want to not look at the uncomfortable things that come up, you know, either outside of myself or inside myself. And they're just like, oh, it'd just be nice to be in this kingdom, you know, everything's just lovely. And um, it reminds me of like, you know, his, the Buddha's practice may have really spurred on or got you know, started uh, when he looked at life as it is and he faced it and he turned towards it and it wasn't like immediate that he felt sublime peace or something um, there was a lot of pain but in the long term The steady um, being able to hold that, being able to hold that, you know, his first step was like holding that, like just seeing somebody that's 
older. And, uh, and then with that brought some, I guess over time brought some equanimity. So um, I think that's like my, for probably forever practice, because I might like, you know, for some moments, be in a place like that, but then also um, want to be more like the king, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh God, okay, that's as much as I can handle. <laughs> so um, that's what spoke to me. Yeah, thank you. Susan, I'll try to describe an experience I recently had. Um, it's a been unusual, but maybe a fruit of practice. Um, I will say, though, at the outset that practice pervades my life, really, just every aspect of it. Um, but I recently traveled to Washington, D.C. and went to the Hirschhorn. And there was an exhibit there by a Japanese artist named, I think it's Yogai Kasuma. You know, is that how you say her name? Okay. And I'd heard of her and I was kind of intrigued. And so I happened to be able to get into it, just got there at the right time, got a ticket. And um, I didn't really know what to expect, but she has um, uh, one type of uh, project that she's known for is something called Infinity Rooms. And so there are a couple of these. And so it's a box that you go into alone and um, she's got it set up so that you have an experience when you're in it. And so I walked into one of these infinity rooms and it's, it's mirrors and you basically see many, many, you know, infinite images of yourself. And it was lit in a certain way. And I just had the most visceral and experiential, um, um, well, experience of this, our infinite connectedness. I mean, like, oh my gosh, we are all connected. We are all one thing. And it was just like bodily. And, you know, didn't expect that at all. didn't have any conceptual, you know, notion of that as I went in, but I know that is just the kind of fruit of um, the, my, the way my whole orientation has changed, you know, over the years of practice. So something a little different, maybe. But it was really, I was actually quite moved. I started crying. <laughs> But none of that would have happened without it. wasn't the artwork itself. It was that in combination with my experience. Yeah, practice. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I can share something. Um, so the part of the story that speaks to me um, today is so it's told that like the last temptation was from Mara essentially sowing uh, self doubt in the Buddha, like something along the lines of who do you think you are that you could do this? You know, like how could you be so arrogant? Stop, stop, um, which is a voice that's in various forms pervasive in my mind. And the Buddha's response is this. He just touches the ground and it said that in that moment that's when the term happens so to take for an example that like the place of refuge is not an idea not even a really great idea that the buddha could have but it's something like under something else something more than an idea um 
that's touching touching the earth and I don't like to try to define what that means too tightly because I like to let it kind of work but um yeah I have a Buddha the Buddha my, that I have in my apartment is a it's an earth touching Buddha and it just is an endless source of uh, inspiration and uh, a reminder that I need many times a day, every day. <laughs> Anybody else? Darcy. Oh, Darcy. So what was coming up for me when you were talking, and I, I really haven't studied a lot as far as ancient texts or like the Buddha. I mean, I heard the basic story, but as you were talking, what was coming up for me was, I mean, surely in this castle, this community, there were old people. Certainly there were people who got sick. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I, maybe it's some kind of resistance to this old stuff. I don't know. But, so, the, so anyway, I just was staying with my experience, right? Um, and uh, but I think what's common that I could really relate to is we all just want to kind of leave whatever, and and it seems essential to leave home, leave our conditioning, you know, and take ourselves outside of it so we can get a new perspective. But what really hit me was after we went through all these convolutions, what really touched him was coming back to his origins. He's six years old and he got it even then. Yeah. He got it even then. And there was vulnerability and dying. I, I'm not sure what the, I hadn't quite heard that story before with the insects. I thought that was like he was in touch with something that, that I mean, it pained him to see. It was there all along. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. You know, my practice has been such that I, I don't think I could have made it, you know, through these last couple of years. But what I was looking for is how, what does the life of the Buddha have to do with it? And so I got that gift from your talk. Um, thank you, Darcy. That was beautiful. Um, I, um, the teachings that are working in me are to meet life as it is with compassion and gratitude. And especially at this time of year, I struggle because there were physical and emotional needs that weren't met in my infancy and childhood. And um, there's a longing in me to have them met. And there's a hope 
that is um that is there that I will have them met and sometimes there's an expectation that I will have them met and when that's when I'm in that experience and I and my experience of others is that they're denying it to me I I go through so much suffering and when I shift into the realization that nobody owes me anything and that anything they offer is a gift, I shift into gratitude. And from there, I'm able to be compassionate and generous. So I go through this shift over and over again. Um, and that's what's working in me most profoundly. Done? I think we are. Okay, so um, I'd like to let's do the service, I guess, and then we'll do the walk party. Maka Hanya Haramita Shinyo.